This is Talking Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talking Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Blinn, and welcome back to Talking Mule Deer. Jody, today we have uh, a couple of great people from the great state of Utah. We have Randy Larson and Brock McMillan, wildlife professors at Brigham Young University and one of their grad students, Tabitha Hughes. Uh, I like to refer to Randy and Brock, I think this is the third time now, as the dynamic duo of uh, the wildlife ecology unit down there at BYU. And uh, we're going to be talking to them about some of the work they've been doing on mule deer fawns. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Brock, tell us a little bit. You guys got started. I mean, this is a busy time of year for you, I know, so we appreciate the time that you're pulling. Give us a little bit of a background about the program that you have there at BYU and, and some of the big picture of the work that you're working on. Uh, thanks, Jody. So the background, first of all, Randy and I are, are mule deer hunters. Born, born, bred, right on. through and through. So we both grew up in Utah, and we've both been passionate about chasing mule deer since we were young. Um, and that led to our careers. So we both said uh, we want to be wildlife biologists or wildlife ecologists, and we want to do something that we love to do. And we both came to BYU 13 years ago. In fact, we were both hired for the same position. Oh, how'd that work out? You're so, still both there, so was, that's a good thing. Very odd. They were they were advertising for a fish person and a wildlife person, and we both interviewed for the wildlife position, and they didn't like any of the fish candidates, and they hired us both for the same position. Nice. And and we hit it off from the very beginning. Uh, we complement each other, and um, like I think he's handsome. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I'm the better looking one. So, so <laughs> they don't anyway. see pictures while we're doing the podcast. Where did you come from, though? Where You guys both started 13 years ago. Tell us a little bit about your background and where you got your, your training. Sure, I'll go first. So I did my undergraduate degree at Utah State University, and then I went to Kansas State University for my doctorate. And then I taught for 10 years at Minnesota State University before coming to BYU in 2008. And Jody, I was hired uh, right out of a PhD. I did a PhD at Utah State University in Logan and then was hired here in 2008. Very good. I have a fondness for Utah State. My brother-in-law got his master's through there as well. So beautiful part of the, the state and a, a good program. So so tell us a little bit about, so you came up on board at BYU about 13 years ago. What were some of the ideas that you had um, for research and how you wanted to develop the program and how that's led you to, to some of the work you're doing right now on mule deer? Uh, go ahead, Randy. <laughs> uh, so, well, it, it's not hard to want to work on mule deer, right? So we both grew up hunting and fishing, both grew up in Utah back in the, the days when Utah had 200,000 mule deer hunters. It was a big deal. You could go, you know, you could go out and hunt in the morning on the opening weekend, and then you could catch a BYU football game and see everybody in the stands in their hunter orange. Hmm. And so it's not hard to think about wanting to work on mule deer. There's lots of issues, as everybody knows, lots of concern from a conservation standpoint. And so we've, we've been able to partner with lots of partners, Mule Deer Foundation, uh, other nonprofits, state, state agency, federal agencies. Uh, and then the fun connection is students. So this, this university is very focused on training the next generation of professionals in whatever field. And so there's a fun connection to be able to make with students like Tabitha. And Jody, just a side note, that's how I met these guys is through uh, a training course that we all help teach called Conservation Leaders for Tomorrow. And, you know, immediately the mule deer connection uh, and the personalities clicked and, you know, we've been in contact ever since. And, you know, we don't talk as much as we should, but the research they put out is fabulous. And we're learning a lot about mule deer in general, but specifically mule deer in Utah. So I think, guys, your first deer project was the Monroe project, right? 
So correct, Steve. So I believe that started in, in 2010, 2011. Uh, there was a lot of concern in the state of Utah that predators were limiting mule deer populations. And uh, the state wanted to determine whether that was true or not. And we started the mule deer pro the Monroe project. And basically the Monroe project was a, a project where we manipulated predator densities and we examined survival of neonate mule deer or newborn fawns. And what we what learned was yeah. that, that maybe that sometimes that's true. So, uh, I you think mean, it's not really, always the, the predators eating all the fawns. So usually it's predators that are eating the fawns, but the question is whether that, that mortality is additive or compensatory. And by that, I mean, whether it, it's additional mortality in addition to what's going to happen anyway, or whether it just compensates for another type of mortality. So for example, if, if the deer are limited by nutrition, it doesn't matter how many are alive going into winter, all the skinny ones are gonna die. And they're all skinny if, if they're limited by nutrition. So whether a predator killed 10 or not, doesn't make any difference. But if all the deer are fat going into winter, then yes, predators can be an additive source of mortality. So you guys went and captured fawns how do you capture a fawn? I mean, it seems like you have to be there right at the time of birth. How do you guys go about making sure that that happens? It was very different then than it is now. So technology is advancing tremendously. So, so we used a similar technology. We catch a female, an adult doe in March. We use a portable ultrasound to determine if she's pregnant. And if she's pregnant, then we implant a vaginal transmitter, a transmitter into the vagina of the deer. And when uh, she gives birth, that transmitter is expelled. As soon as it cools three degrees Celsius, it changed, at that time, it changed its pulse rate. And so it went from 40 beats per minute to 80 beats per minute. And so every day we would have to go locate all 70 deer that have a transmitter. We'd have to listen to the mother, would listen to the fawns, the vaginal implant transmitter to see if it was beeping faster. If it was beeping faster, we knew there was a fawn on the ground. And then we would go in and try to find the birth site, locate that transmitter, find the birth site and find the fawns. Now it's fantastic. Tabitha can maybe talk about it. It's all linked through a system called Neolink. So that transmitter that we insert in the vagina communicates with mom's caller, which communicates with us via email. And so when that transmitter is expelled, Randy and I get an email that says a birthing event just happened and it happened at this GPS location. So, so Randy, you've got a go bag ready, you know, at all times by the door, <laughs> sort of like when you were having kids, it's, you know, you got to be ready to hit the road at any hour of the day, right? You got like three days, Steve, you a guy like you already three days and there can't, you can't catch them after that. If they're three days old, forget about it. Tabitha <laughs> could maybe stretch into four or five days and she'd have a chance. The two guys like us would be three days tops. Yeah, just get just getting up that many days in a row in the middle of the night would probably, you know, rule me out pretty quickly anymore. But so you guys catch the fawns, you put a collar on them, and then you basically take the information from that collar and analyze it. And, you know, in the Monroe study, you were looking at predator issues. And, you know, tell us what you found between control and, and, uh, impact so great steve so what we found was that uh we divided the mountain up into three sections and the and one section was a buffer then we had a north and a south and those were treatment areas and the first two years of the study we we controlled predators on the north third of the mountain and then we switched that up and we controlled predators for the last two years of the study on the south end of the mountain and the results were really clear. And that is if you control, and by controlling predators, I mean we remove coyotes. Uh, if you remove coyotes from the mountain, uh, you can enhance fawn survival. Uh, in fact, we increased fawn survival from about 40, 45% fawn survival to 75% fawn survival with two year removal of coyotes. And that, that number 75% is, is, if not the highest, one of the very highest 
survival rates in the literature for zero to six months from that zero to six right. month time frame. Wow. So did you find the temporary effect like we've seen in coyote removal studies before that if you stop doing it, it goes back to the previous issues or what did you find there? So uh, we didn't particular ex particularly examine that, but yes, there some seems to be a lag effect. So it takes a year or two to return. Um, anyway, um, what we did also find, Steve, which was very interesting, is if you did not remove the coyote from the fawning zone, then it had no effect on fawn survival. So in other words, valley coyotes were valley coyotes, mountain coyotes were mountain coyotes. If you remove valley coyotes, it didn't do anything for fawn survival. If you remove the mountain coyotes in that 7,000 to 9,000 foot elevation zone where they're fawning, it would enhance survival. And, wow. and that band, that, that fawning band would change depending on where you're at a little bit. It's a little lower, farther north. But on the Monroe, 7,000 to 9,000 feet was where most of those females were giving birth. And that's where you needed to remove coyotes in order to have maximum effect. This is really interesting stuff. We do have to take a break to hear from our supporters. When we come back, I want to um, wrap up the Monroe project and think about how you transition and, and talk to Tabitha a little bit about the project that you're working on now and, and what you're learning and how that new technology is making a difference for the studies that you're doing. Elk, sheep, big old muleys, not a problem for the 27 Nosler. We packed it with more downrange punch than the 300 Win Mag. We designed it to be flatter shooting than the 6.5 PRC. The 27 Nosler is everything you've heard, all that you've asked for, and plenty more. So enough talking. Check out the numbers for yourself and see what makes the 27 Nosler such a beast at Nosler.com. If you're buying or selling a trophy hunting or fishing property in the western U.S., our friends at St. James Sporting Properties should be your go-to resource. St. James Sporting Properties is more than an elite group of professional ranch brokers. They're also passionate about chasing monster mule deer, highly successful big game hunters, and avid outdoorsmen. When you combine their passion and expertise in the outdoors with their industry-leading marketing program, you're guaranteed to have a first-class experience. For more information, Go to the Supporting Partners page on MuleDeer.org or give St. James Sporting Properties a call today to buy or sell your dream sporting property. All right, we are back. And uh, before the break, we were hearing a little bit more about the predator removal uh, and what you found in terms of, of fawn uh, mortality rates there in the Monroe study. Um, before we move on to what's going on, what we have now, what you're working on now, were there any other conclusions that you were able to draw or anything you learned from long-term after you uh, you studied that for, for a period of time? Yeah, so one thing I'll, I'll mention, Jody, is so with increased fawn survival, that population almost doubled uh, wow. following those couple of years of really high fawn survival, but then it looked like it bumped into a nutritional limitation. So one of the common themes that the data point you to regularly throughout all the stuff we've done is there's a connection between predation and nutrition. And so habitat and predation are linked. When animals are in good shape, when fawns are big, when then they go into winter healthy and fat, they survive better. Uh, when they're in poor shape, they have increased susceptibility to predation. So I think that in my opinion, is one of the key themes that's come out of the stuff we've done for the last decade or plus, is that link and that connection between predation and, and habitat. And and Randy, I'm going to stop you there because we don't need Brock to go into his lecture on K and carrying <laughs> capacity and all the other things, because then we'll be here for the next hour and a half. But yeah. it's, uh, you know, for folks listening out there, you know, habitat really is a key driver on a lot of things that happen to our population. And what Randy's describing is, is you're going to reach a carrying capacity issue and that's being driven by nutrition and all the other factors that are out there. What we often call K or carrying capacity, meaning the land is only going to be able to carry a certain number of deer on that landscape. And after that, it's you, no matter what you do, you're not going to get an increase. So, Right. So um, if I could add to that, Steve, 
predator control is only going to help when you're below K. They're going to die of another reason of malnutrition when you get close to K. Yeah. And, you know, did you have bears on the mountain too? Because we often hear a lot now these days about black bear predation on fawns as a big driver. And I don't know if that complicated your your issue down there, but uh, what can you tell us about the bear issue? The Monroe is a pretty simple predator system, mostly just coyotes and cougars. There's a few bears, not many. It's it's a little different in some other places like the book cliffs where we've been working recently, where there's lots lots of black bears. But Monroe is pretty simple. Mostly lions, mostly mostly coyotes. And the predation is mostly through coyotes and not the lions. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, no, actually, on the Monroe, it was about 50-50. Hmm. So this is one thing that we've really learned, and that is lions take almost as many. On the on the book cliffs where we're studying now, lions actually take more fawns than, than coyotes. Um, but lions continue their predator effects into adulthood, and coyotes really don't. Okay. That's interesting. So the book cliffs study, I'm assuming, is that, Tabitha, that's part of your research? Um, I've mostly been involved with the cache study, which is located in northern Utah. And that's okay. a year before um, the book cliffs. So the cache study is actually over now. Last summer was our last summer. Um, but we're doing another summer on the book cliffs. So I, I work with both units, but mostly on the cache. Well, tell us about the cache study. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that talk on nutrition was a great segue into what the cache study was all about. So the main research with the cache is where we were trying to determine whether or not maternal conditions, so the condition, how fat the moms were, um, affected fawn survival. And the cache study began in 2018, so quite a few years after the Monroe study. Um, so I, I really had a much easier job and the other graduate student involved, we had a much easier job than the Monroe because the technology had improved to a point where, you know, all we had to do was hop on the computer and see if we got any emails, whereas before they actually had to go out and, like, the the collars emit and the vaginal implant transmitters emit a radio signal. So on the Monroe, they had to go out and they had to listen, and it emitted a different signal when it had been expelled. Um, but we just had to look at our emails. So we definitely had it a bit easier. Um, but yeah, we um, we were able to find that there's a clear relationship between maternal condition and fawn survival. So basically, the better condition the moms are in, the more likely her fawns are going to survive through the winter, which is really cool. So I'm assuming when you are coloring the dull, um, and I think I heard you guys say you do that in kind of late winter, early spring, so March-ish, is that correct? And and, it, and do the ultrasound. I'm assuming at that point you're doing body condition um, analysis at that time, and that's how you're judging her fitness at that point. Yes, correct. And Brock and Randy could speak more um, to that process for sure. So helicopter capture, Jody, uh, net gun, and then the deer are brought back kind of like a mobile mash unit where there's a bunch of biologists there waiting. Uh, the deer are, are processed very quickly and efficiently. There's a vet on, on staff or on hand there. And then we're using ultrasounds, some of the work that Rachel Cook did from Pacific Northwest to, to allows you to take a few measurements, body weight, uh, rump fat thickness, um, loin thickness, and a few other things and you can calculate body fat on a live animal. And then that measurement of body fat turns out to be very, very helpful and very, very predictive of what's going to happen to that female, whether she lives or dies, how, how big her fawn's going to be, how, how quickly the fawn's going to grow over the six months, how big it's going to be going into the next winter. Uh, that, that measurement of body fat turns out to be really, really important. And so what's your average body fat percentage wise uh, for, for a fawn? I mean, for, for a doe, for her to pull off a healthy fawn? Well, they range. So on the low end, you'll get animals that have just like 4% body fat, um, maybe upper threes on the really, really low end. And then there'll be some that you can't even feel their hips. They've got 20 plus millimeters of rump fat. Uh, and that what we see is this really strong positive correlation between that body fat 
and how big the fawns are when they're born, how much they grow over six months, uh, and then how much they weigh, how big they are in their first December before they enter their first winter. There's that this really strong connection. And then depending on how bad the winter's gonna be, where you're at in the state, whether you're in Northern Utah where we get some snow or whether you're in Southern Utah where we get less, that, that's, that all varies. But in general for fawns, bigger's better going into winter. Uh, and that depends a lot on how fat mom is in March. So I'm curious, are you finding those differences in body fat and condition seasonally amongst a herd or are you actually seeing it within the same year Will you'll find a doe that's super fat and you'll find one that's not so much or is it more kind of a consistently that this year was a bad year and most of our does weren't in, in, in great shape and so that the fawn survival is likely going to be affected by that that's a that's a great question so we find the variation within a year for deer so we capture, we capture these deer in both December and March. So one of the questions we've been interested in is, is summer range more important or is winter range more important? So to answer that question, we've been looking at condition of the deer coming into winter, so the first week of December, and then condition of the deer going out of winter at, at the first week of March. And um, there's a huge variation in December. Uh, like Randy said, we can have deer that have just two or three millimeters of rump fat and some that have close to 30 millimeters of rump fat. And a lot of that is tied to whether that mother was successful at raising fawns that current year or not. So if she's raised fawns all summer long, uh, she's not nearly as fat as if she failed to raise fawns or she didn't try to raise fawns for that year for whatever reason. And by, by, by March, there's still a lot of variation, but they're all in relatively poor shape. So we may be ranging in, by March, by the end of winter, like Randy said, around 4%, maybe up to 7% body fat. There's not, it's not up into the 12 or 15% body fat like we might see in December. And I think that's real important, Brock, because when we deal with particularly the, the manifestation of people wanting to get out on winter ranges earlier and earlier every year that they need to realize deer are in their worst condition, particularly the does at the end of winter. And by putting any additional stress, it may mean, you know, the difference between them surviving the rest of the winter or pulling off, you know, fawns. And, uh, you know, a lot of what you do and what you guys have been talking about is what we're looking at from the Mule Deer Foundation's uh, approach to habitat management. Do we need to continue to focus on winter range and migration corridors, or do we need to start looking at some of those summer ranges a little bit harder so that they are in better, I guess, forage condition for, for putting on weight, uh, when in the past we just assumed they might be okay. And um, Tabitha, I would just, you know, turning back to you is, is with, when you looked at things that you learned as a student coming into that study and what you've been through the last three to four years, what are some of the takeaways that that are, you're going to really carry with you that, that can help us in the management world? Um, I think, and this is, you know, going a little bit off, but I think the most important thing that I learned was how important it is to involve different groups and different people. Um, the Fawn Project was a really, really huge project. It took a lot of effort and it took a lot of volunteers. And to be frank, we could not have pulled it off without the hundreds of hours that volunteers um, gave us. So I think it's really important um, in management and in research and science that we involve people and involve the people who are passionate about these, these subjects and this research. Um, I think that is probably the single most important thing about all of this is just involving people. Well, I, you're, you're really lucky that uh, you've got two professors to learn from. And, you know, uh, getting back to something you said earlier that they had it, you know, someone said that it's easier now that you get an email. In 30 years, I want you to answer a question whether you would have rather been out there in the field looking for those every day or sitting at an email. Uh, we're all laughing about it because we know that answer. <laughs> but, um, we've got to take a break. And when we come back, I want to visit with... Uh, with y'all about 
if you saw any difference between resident deer and migrating deer. So we're going to take a break for our supporters and we'll be right back. The best hunting stories begin long before the harvest. They begin with the hard work of conservation groups like the Mule Deer Foundation working tirelessly to protect our hunting traditions. As a proud partner of MDF, Vortex Optics is dedicated to improving your experience in the field by offering you rugged, innovative optics and apparel backed by our VIP warranty, our unlimited lifetime promise to take care of you whenever you need us. Together, let's ensure mule deer always have a place to roam. The best hunting stories are yet to be told. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. I'm Anthony Imperato, president of Henry Repeating Arms. Patriotic Americans are looking to protect and provide for their families now more than ever. Henry has over 200 rifles and shotguns to choose from, made in America or not made at all, and backed by a lifetime guarantee. Go to henryusa.com and order our free catalog, decals, and a list of dealers in your area. That's henryusa.com. Thank you, and God bless America. All right, so uh, right before the break, I set it up, gave these guys in Tabitha time to think about if they saw any difference between what is considered a resident deer and a migrating deer. So I'll throw it back to to the three of you. In all of your work on fawns, did you notice a difference between all of the the factors that you looked at between what's considered a resident deer or a deer that migrates? And the reason I point this out is, as you guys know, coming out of Wyoming right now, we're learning a lot of differences between the fawning characteristics of deer that migrate versus residents. So I'll throw that out to whoever wants to try to take a stab at it. Uh, let me say just a couple things. We we have really enjoyed following that same research in Wyoming. That's great stuff that they do over there. Matt Kaufman, Kevin Monteith, that group. Uh, in Utah, we definitely have migratory deer, but one of the interesting things that we've seen, we just got done with a big formal analysis of all these GPS collars that are out in the state. And we have only about half, even a little less than half of the deer in Utah fit the classic definition of a mi of migration, where they spend time in the winter on winter range, and then they head up to summer range. Maybe there's a stopover or two. We've got deer doing all kinds of different things in this state. Uh, Utah's pretty, topographically diverse. We've got three big eco regions. You can go from northern Utah, where you get sort of big snow, big heavy winters, to, to southern Utah, Red Rock, etc. One of the interesting things that all these GPS callers have shown us and, and shown us all is that there's a lot of diversity in migratory behavior, whether it's, it's not just as simple as being a resident or a migratory animal. We've got, uh, I'm, I've got one here right behind me, a set of antlers from a buck that you would call it a resident deer, except for every November 15th, it moves about 30 miles to what you maybe would call rutting area, breeding area. And then it spends a month there. And then middle of December, it comes right back to where it's, where it's lived the rest of the 11 mm -hmm. months. So what do you do with that? What do you call that? Is that well, 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 if it I'm was in Nevada, we'd know where it would be going, you know, for that month. <laughs> but it, well, it, 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 it adds to the old uh, hunters trying to pattern a specific animal. <laughs> you can't necessarily keep track of that one on the area you've been seeing it all summer long because he's, he's hightailing yeah. it and threatening somewhere else. And even to add to what Randy said, some of the deer change behaviors from year to year. So one exhibits this classical migration from high elevation, 45 miles to low elevation one year. And then the next year it goes the opposite direction. Uh, and then we have some that behave just like you see from, from the Kaufman Monteith lab where they, they walk the exact same trail every single year, step for step. Uh, and so it, it is like Randy said, very, very highly variable, uh, the behavior among deer. Well, and that really, uh, what we're looking at at MDF and with our partners is really trying to tailor management to the local situation. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about landscapes, we talk about understanding what we need to do when we need to do it. And what you guys just described is, is we can't take something off the shelf and apply it throughout the range of mule deer or in black-tailed deer is because there are 
local variables. And, you know, some of the initiatives that Jody and I are working on right now are trying to build uh, collective partnerships and, and management actions around that sort of approach is getting everyone together, figuring out what we need to do, where we need to do it, how we're going to get it done so that it meets the local needs. And um, it, uh, I can't tell you how many times that, that I've asked Matt Kaufman, and you guys have probably heard me ask him, is, Matt, why does a deer walk through really good winter range to get to crappy winter range 100 miles south? And, you know, the answer that we have right now is, is that's what it's mama taught him to do. And that's Wyoming. But what you guys are describing in Utah, that may not be the case because you still have that same nurturing aspect of a doe teaching its fawn how to survive, but yet you get all this variability out there. Yeah. And I think, you know, back to this, this idea of improved technology, the costs for all the transmitters have come down dramatically. And I think that that's going to continue in the future. The technology is getting better and better. And so that what you're talking about, Steve, with the ability to identify the local herd unit issue, it's becoming more available to us all. And so instead of trying to, to just guess what might be going on at the local level, as more callers get put out, uh, as we understand more about condition and predation and migration, we can hone in on what those limiting factors are and how those vary across a state or et cetera. And we're able to, I think, target conservation actions in a much more meaningful way be, in, in large part due to that improved and increased uh, technology. Well, and that's important because, I mean, as we all know, conservation dollars are, are limited. You know, we, we, we do the best we can with what we have. Thankfully, we've got some some great programs and, and Steve has done a tremendous job for MDF specifically in, in targeting dollars and getting grants and things, but they're limited. So you need and want to be able to identify the places where they're going to make the most difference. Um, you know, the ra random acts of conservation is something we've talked about a number of times. So, so the data that you guys are providing are, are, is helping to, to determine where to do the conservation measures, what other types of uh, factors are involved with herd health, uh, and being able to apply that to how big picture within a state, within a region, we can, we can manage our herds. So that leads me back a little bit because we, we started to talk about book cliffs. Um, but I know this is a relatively new study. And I also know that there is some concern with, with uh, deer recruitment. I, I've seen some of the funding through the Watershed Restoration Initiative is saying there is, is, is going to be funding some studies in that area. Tell us a little bit about what is going on there, what you know, and then what you're hoping to carry forward and in, in study. Is there going to be any difference to that study compared to what you've done in other places? So that, that's a great question, Jody. So the book cliffs is unique in the state of Utah. So it's it's relatively to the north, but it is what we consider somewhat marginal. Very little rainfall. We can blame Jim Zumbo for that and in all his writing and outdoor life. And we've, we've mentioned that. On, you know, Jim, if you would have never told people about the book cliffs, they'd be still be as good as they were when you found them. <laughs> so it's still great out there. So... We do have a study. Uh, we're just starting the third year. In fact, Tabitha will be moving out there this Friday with the other graduate student. And um, we've been looking for the last two years at uh, a condition of adult deer and elk, uh, distribution of deer, elk, bison, feral horses, and pronghorn on the landscape, uh, predation of adults and neonates, uh, it's a very complex predator community, high density of mountain lions, high density of black bears, high density of coyotes. Um, and we're looking at uh, all the factors and trying to, to put a story together on what's going on in that unit. Why has the deer population declined over the last, it appears to have declined over the last decade or so. And what are the factors that are regulating that population? Having said that, it's a great unit. If you want to see deer, uh, you can just, it's, it's really, most of it's really accessible. Uh, there is a roadless area, but the accessible area has a lot of deer. The road runs right through the middle of the, of the summer range. And on any given morning, you can drive that road and see maybe, I don't know, two or three or 400 deer with 40 or 50 Four point, deer, four point bucks. I mean, it's just a fabulous unit uh, to work in. 
We need to take a quick break, I think, um, if, if and listen to our supporters here real quick. And, and I want to come back to, to Book Cliffs and find out a little bit more about that. And, and Jim, we love you. Um, we're not we're not blaming you. It is still a great unit to, to hunt in. But uh, but it is also there are factors that are affecting the deer herd out there. So let's take a break real quick. And when we come back, we'll loop back in on, on this study and what you guys all have going forward over the coming months. For three generations and over 75 years, Weatherby has remained dedicated to excellence and innovation in producing quality rifles, shotguns, and ammunition. With 15 cartridges and unmatched ballistic superiority, know that nothing shoots flatter, hits harder, or is more accurate. Carry a Weatherby on your hunt of a lifetime and know you can depend on it to get the job done. At Weatherby, we exist to do one thing, inspire the dreams of hunters and shooters. To learn more, visit weatherby.com. All right. When we broke off the last time we were talking about the book cliffs herd and the study that you guys are starting to initiate there, Tabitha, you're moving out there the end of this month. What's, what's the game plan? Um, well, we, uh, we'll be camping out there. It's, it's a lot rougher than the cash, the cash. We had like a nice cabin and running water, (laughs) um, but any day now we're expecting the elk cows to start dropping. They usually give birth, um, a little earlier than the deer. The deer usually start giving birth um, end of May. Um, so we'll hopefully start catching elk calves soon. Um, but then end of May, the deer will start dropping and it'll get really busy really fast. And that should go into the end of June. How many callers are you looking to put out this year, Tabitha? Um, I think we're looking to put out about 30 elk callers and around 50 fawn callers. And you'll travel. You'll you'll track those animals then for is it two year window, three year window? So generally, we track them for at least six months, and then they'll actually come in and recapture as many as as many six month olds as they can with a helicopter, and they'll put GPS collars on them. So the collars that we're putting on them this summer, um, they're they're Neolink collars. So they have the collars on their own cannot send GPS points. They can't, you know, connect with the satellites. But because of, you know, this cool technology that we've been talking about, they have the ability to communicate with mom's collar. Um, So when the animal dies, if they die, um, and mom is close enough, the mom's collar will actually tell us if they die. And then we can go and retrieve them. So we will track them for six months. Um, Sometimes they don't, always catch all of them and we'll usually track them to about a year if they're unable to put those GPS collars on them. So Steve, to follow up on that, the collars we put on this next month are expandable collars that eventually drop off. So we're catching a, a eight to 12 pound uh, fawn and they're small. We put this collar on and it expands as the animal grows, but eventually it falls off. And then we, at six months, we can put a collar with an expansion on that will stay on that animal for a couple of years. Yeah, where I was going with that, Brock, is, um, you know, are, are you looking at your samples or, or the neonates up to six months, or is it the actual sample that you collect through two, three years? Because, you know, w- without getting in statistics, you know, you've got all those issues associated with that. And you know, it's interesting, and, and Randy, you were telling us earlier that uh, you can actually learn a lot about a buck based on what happens as a fawn. Yeah, so there's a lot a lot more focus now, Steve and Jody, on, on tracking through those about first three years of life. So we'll spend a lot of energy catching the fawns here in June. Then we'll spend a lot of money and energy with the helicopter. State of Utah will be trying to catch the same animals, and we'll do a pretty good job of getting most of them. And then once they're at six months of age, the collar technology will allow you to put a collar on that will last up to three years, even a little more than that. Uh, Collect a dozen locations a day. And so you're able to really understand what happens uh, through about three, three and a half years of age. And this is going well beyond, Steve and Jody, this is going well beyond the book cliffs or the cache or the Monroe. So Randy and I collaborate with MBF and other sportsmen's groups, and it's particularly the state of Utah. And the state of Utah is great, and we work with them. And 
to give you an idea of the effort, we've collared roughly 4,000 deer. And so wow. this is the largest sample size anywhere in the world that I know of. We've collared 4,000 deer. So we're learning from 4,000 animals across 27 units in the state of Utah. And we're catching six-month-olds and adults in every one of those units. Wow. Yeah, and what's funny about that is it's, it's amazing what we're learning on what we thought we knew. Right. Um, you know, it's uh, whether it's crossings, migrations, the, the fawning info, the, the nutritional info. I mean, we've seen your, your data where some of your deer, and I don't remember which study, are going up through one of our habitat project units, you know, up about 100 miles north of there, you know, turn around, coming back. And, you know, we think it's because we're doing the habitat work up there. But, you know, it, it, it really is fascinating work. And I know you guys put out that information. But um, it, uh, someone who was raised in the woods has spent 30 years as a biologist. And, you know, I, I, I think I know a lot, particularly the deer herds I know. And I would only be baffled to know if you would put collars on those same deer that I hunt year after year and what they're actually doing. So it's yeah. Um, sometimes you kind of, you find out what, and, and you learn something that is new and it surprises you. Other times it does sort of fit with what you thought. Uh, but it's, it's regardless, it's nice to actually have it quantified of spatial data that show you where they're at, what they're doing, why they die, how healthy they are, etc. Yeah. So I have, you know, this is, this is me thinking like potentially some others, when you see a day or two old fawn, well, a collar on, um, and, and yes, we know it's expandable and even the handling of the does in a potentially, um, you know, fragile state when they're pregnant at the end of the winter season, tell us a little bit about handling techniques and, and, and how the technology is, is, is helping obviously study, but that it's also, I'm assuming, obviously, we, we know that that's not having an impact, impact on survival as well. Uh, that's a great question, Jody. This is one of the things we were really concerned about when we started all this work. And in fact, a lot of the state biologists were concerned about it. And there was a quite a bit of pushback. Let's not stress these animals at all in March. Let's not handle young animals because that's stressing them and it's going to cause mortality. We don't know what the total effect is. But what we do know is they don't die. Uh, it doesn't influence their survival. Uh, even if an animal comes in, we used to think that if an animal came in warm, so if a helicopter chases them for five minutes, they might come in at 102 degrees or something like that, body temperature, or even 103. And we probably- normal body temperature back. is what? What's that? And normal body temperature is what? 99 to 100. I mean, okay. they're a little warmer than us. So they yep. might be elevated a little bit. But we've really had, once in a while, accidents happen, of course. If you're going to study wildlife, uh, you've got to be willing to accept an accident. But that happens maybe to 1% or 2% of the animals, and that's usually related to the capture crew. It's not related to the biologist handling the animal. Uh, we've really had virtually zero mortality based on handling adult deer and even handling the fawns. And, in fact, we used to think, Jody and Steve, that, that we needed to give these animals a day to bond with their mother before we'd, we would go and, and catch them because mom would run, mom would smell human scent on them and she would abandon them. And we've got zero evidence of that. Even if we go in, we've, we've studied it really, really carefully in elk. And if we give that animal uh, five hours to bond with mom, we've had zero abandonment after five hours. Uh, we haven't done that complex of an analysis with deer, but we, we have zero abandonment. Deer don't move as quickly as elk. If you don't get an elk calf within a day, <laughs> you're not going to get them. <laughs> it's really hard right. to get them because mom elk have a really cool behavior. They give birth. And then after that, that calf dries off, mom picks it up and moves that calf away from the birth site. I think away from the smell and everything to protect it. And if, so if you don't catch them before she moves it, it might, she might move it only 500 yards and then it stays there for two days. But if you don't catch it before she moves, 500 yards really increases your search area and makes it almost impossible. Deer, on the other hand, stay right close to the birth site for, in general for a couple days. And so you don't have to be as quick for deer. We still try to get there like within a day or so. But if you come two days, they're still going to be really close. 
Well, I, I, I just want to throw this out there. How many times were you guys standing there? You knew that you were within feet of an animal. And because <laughs> of their camouflage and stillness, you didn't see them. And then all of a sudden it was like finding a morel mushroom. Boom, it just pops and you've been looking at it the whole time. Every time, but I can let Tabitha answer that. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. You'd think like spawns, uh, spawns are really distinctive. Like they have those spots. You think they'd be really easy to see, but I can't tell you the number of times we've been like searching an area. We knew there was fawns and we walked past it like five times before we saw it. It's, it's incredible how well they can hide. So that old adage of leave them alone, don't touch an animal or a mother will abandon it really isn't applicable. We don't want folks going right. out <laughs> and separating newborns, whatever the animal is from their mother, but as you, as you know, Brock, Randy, and Jody, it, it, when we were growing up, how many times did we heard "Don't touch a newborn anything because the mother will abandon it"? Yeah, we we definitely heard that, but we also know that that some of that is also that mom is there but not seen, and and so people think that that fawn is abandoned, and obviously that's that's clearly not the case when you're saying that you're handling these animals, and mom's back there, and you know for sure that 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 she's coming back and taking care of those babies. Well, you know, moose, on the other hand, have a different way of keeping you away from their fawns. And, <laughs> and those of us that have been in that experience, yeah, we just, we give them a wide berth. So. <laughs> All right, we need to take another break uh, to hear from our supporters. Uh, when we come back, I think we probably need to start kind of wrapping this up and, and thinking through about where you're going long-term with this research and any other plans that you all might be having for, for additional researchers research or other students that have different plans that they've got going on. So take a quick break and we'll be back in just a minute. For the cold, heat, and rough terrain, Zeiss Optics are built to meet the wilderness and the elements up close. And mule deer hunters are going to love what they see. Zeiss has redesigned its entire product line and now includes lightweight precision rifle scopes, binoculars, rangefinders, and spotting scopes that the western hunter demands. The industry-leading V4 scopes feature 14 new reticle options and scope configurations, while the V6 premium rifle scopes with shot FL glass lead the market in optics and repeatability. The Victory RF rangefinding binocular is the ultimate tool for glassing and ranging, while the Gavia 85 is the leader in premium packable lightweight spotting scopes. Zeiss Optics, delivering peak performance in even the most demanding conditions. All right, guys. So we've heard a lot about the the research that you've got working on right now, and uh, and and all of the interesting things that you are finding, and and, and some of the new stuff that you're going to be working on this summer. Give us a big picture of of kind of the grounding of what you've learned so far, and where you're taking that from 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 here, and and potentially other students that are coming on. Yeah, great, Jody. So this this uh, we've got a great partnership here in the state of Utah. Um, it's a partnership with state and federal agencies, with nonprofits, and uh, we're doing good things. We're learning a lot, and I, we expect it to continue for a number of decades. There are lots and lots of issues. One of the main things we've learned is that you need that local information, kind of like we've talked about, in that the different herd units in this state, and I'm sure it's the same in other states, uh, they're limited by different things. They have different issues and challenges and so uh, a big challenge moving forward over the next number of years is going to be taking this volume of data millions of gps points and learning and, and turning that into actionable information so how do we close that gap or that that delta between research and management and so you see us doing a lot, trying to share information. Uh, there's a lot of uh, applications, technologies helping us. Uh, you know, the ability to log in and see a, a, the current estimate of survival for a specific herd unit, to see what animals are dying of in a specific herd unit, and then to have that information available to all of us so that we can sit in meetings where management decisions and conservation decisions are made and have the information be actionable and be information that we can use rather than just data sitting in somebody's thesis like Tabitha's thesis here. And so that's, I think, uh, moving forward over the next number of years, one of the big challenges as we become overwhelmed with data 
how do we move that to information that can then be used to make good decisions for conservation? Well, and I think that's important. Steve mentioned it earlier that you you have data that shows how they've used a project where we've done a habitat project. Um, and I think as as there are more of these projects and, 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 and working to improve habitat and improve condition, being able to mirror that or, or overlay that information across that you're gathering from the deer and the places that we know that we're doing these, the, these habitat projects, the building, ensuring they've got plenty of forage there and seeing where we're being successful, that those are truly making a difference for, for the animals on the ground. I think, um, you know, I think it's something we keep saying it, but being able to prove it and show that that herd health has gotten better because of the work we're doing on the ground is, is vital. Yeah, and I think it'll become really powerful as you match up uh, the GPS location data with the condition or the body fat of these animals to understand, okay, if they're using those treatment areas, uh, the habitat improvement work that everybody is so focused on, are they healthier as individuals? And we've got that individual level of detail with the GPS collar data. Which treatment type is leading to, to greater gains in condition? I think I think all that's, yeah. I'm fascinated by that. I'm excited to start to see some of that response. Well, have you, are you guys doing any of that resource selection function now with the current information or are you still just collecting data? No. no, in the middle of it, um, we, you know, there's examples of deer that are selecting very heavily for treatment areas. There's been, you know, in lots of the western states, there's big fires. In, in Utah, we've had several that, from a mule deer perspective, we would look at as really actually positive. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they make the national news, and and there's some, you know, concerns with, with watershed and some of those types of things. But from a mule deer habitat standpoint, many of the fires we've had in this state in the recent years have been viewed as positive. And so it'll be fun to see how animals respond to those fires in terms of their, their resource selection, their habitat selection, but then also how that translates into body fat, which we yep. know links all the way through the fawns, you know, all the way through. So. Well, it's interesting because I was just uh, doing a writing project and had done and was searching for research that made the connection, if possible, between forest restoration projects um, and prescribed burning or wildfires that have been um, restored well. You know, we talk about this, the the cheatgrass moving in being an issue in lower elevations and things like that. But, you know, fire's not a bad thing. It's just how it burns is important. But there really wasn't a lot of data that created, uh, that, that had good information about a correlation between quality habitat, um, you know, the thinning projects or the fires or whatever, and, you know, survival or, uh, or body condition or anything like that. Um, it, it, it was limited. So it would be fascinating to, to start to get some of that information. Yeah. And in the, in the past, Jody, we've, we've looked at that from a use and distribution model. And um, as, as one of, uh, as a different professor told me when I was working for a federal agency is, you know, you're simple biologist. And I said, well, if it takes simple biology to manage this herd, then that's what I'm going to do. But, you know, what we're talking about is, 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 and you've heard me say it how many times, maximizing our conservation impact and benefit, put doing the right things in the right place, you know, targeted strategic approaches to dealing with the issues that experience that, that are animals are experiencing, whether it's a negative issue or whether it's a positive issue and, and creating the best condition for survivability. And, you know, that's, what's going to sustain our herds. That's what's going to allow us to keep hunting them. And these guys to enjoy those book clip bucks and Henry mountains bucks and all the other one bucks that they get, you know, are privileged to chase around in Utah. And it also really is a challenge to, to folks like Tabitha, the next generation coming in is, is, you know, in Tabitha, this is, I don't know what your plans are. We'd be very interested to hear what you want to pursue in a career, but really, you know, don't be satisfied with what we left you actually do better than we what we're giving you and carrying on that legacy. So with that, Tabitha, what's what are your plans after this field season? You know, you're going to finish up your master's degree. What what kind of business or, or career are you looking to get into? You know, I, I've had such a, an incredible experience these past couple of years. I've been involved in research throughout my undergrad, and it's been such a privilege to be able to work with these animals and to be able to work with this research and 
we've learned so many cool things. And my plans for the future are actually to continue on and get a PhD and hopefully go into academia and be able to, to keep providing this information to the sportsmen and to the managers and hopefully, you know, be helpful. That's the goal is to, to make a difference in some capacity. So that's the hope. That's well, good luck to you on that one. So we have to get wrapping up. We've been talking for a long time and taking up a lot of your time so far. I have a couple of different questions. One, we'll start with Tabitha um, about volunteers. You mentioned that and how important that is. So I'd love to start with you and have you talk about that, but then open it up to, to Brock and Randy as well to have the, the closing thoughts. If we haven't covered something that you wanted to get to um, or your big picture you know, a, evaluation of, of what sportsmen can do or um, what you think the, the long-term impacts of this type of research is going to be. We'll open it up for that, but I'm going to start with you, Tabitha, because you mentioned volunteers and we know we've got some volunteers in our Mule Deer Foundation family. Yeah. So we, we've been able to utilize volunteers a lot in the past. Um, you know, it sometimes, you know, when we're going in and looking for these fawns or these elk calves, um, they're not, you know, we're having to comb a whole area and it's helpful to have, you know, one or two or three extra people to help us, you know, comb an area um, and look for these animals. Um, we've also used volunteers to, in, in, in the past, we've also caught fawns by, um, not from vits, not from collared animals, but from like sitting on a hillside and glassing the area until we see them. That's another area where we have utilized volunteers before. Um, we're not going to be doing that this summer. Um, unfortunately, we don't need to, which I guess is a good thing. Um, but yeah, this summer um, we could, we will we would definitely love to have you know people come out and it's really cool to have people you know because th this isn't most people don't usually get to like hold a fawn or hold an elk um, because as we've talked about, it's kind of like taboo, which is which is a good thing. We don't want people going out and picking up these animals, but we would we would definitely love to have love to be able to share that experience with people this summer. I would love to do that. It would be so neat. So, Brock, Randy, closing thoughts on your end. Randy first. Yeah, I would just say Jody and Steve. It's it's uh, amazing what can be accomplished when you you work uh, collaboratively with a group of passionate people. Everyone puts their ego aside, and it, it's just been awesome these last uh, 13 years or so, whatever it's been, to, to be part of an awesome team that includes, you know, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, Mule Deer Foundation, Sportsmen for Fish and Wildlife, and many others. We're learning so much uh, valuable information that is now making its way into the, the unit level management plans and the actual conservation planning and decision making. And so it's been a highlight. Uh, and, and if, you know, I think we need more of the same throughout uh, the West to conserve uh, mule deer into the future. And I, and I would echo what Randy said. I would also add that I, I think that it also develops trust when we work together. So I've seen in the last 10 years, a complete, not a complete shift, but a shift and we're moving in the right direction where there's a greater trust between the average sportsman and the average manager and the average academic institution. And we're all working for a common goal. And I think we're, we're gaining respect for each other. I appreciate that. We're, we're real happy to have you guys as partners at MDF. Uh, we know we're going to have you back because we didn't even touch on to the deer moving stuff that you guys have been involved in or the antler analysis and all that other stuff. So we know we're going to have you back. Uh, we also would love to talk to you about some of your hunting experiences. I know from having talked to you guys about that, we could spend probably a couple hours and get real <laughs> excited about that. But thank you, gentlemen, for what you do. We really appreciate it. I know we'll be in touch. And Tabitha, good luck with your career. Thank you for all you're doing. And, you know, here at the Mule Deer Foundation, we have to rely on folks like y'all to give us the information to go out and do what we do. You know, and... Uh, and 
and and Randy, if just for people who are interested, I know you've got an Instagram account that you uh, share this information, and I know that there's also a pretty good uh, uh, website uh, for the the BYU Wildlife Program. So we will link to that in our uh, in our information about this this Talking Mule Deer podcast. But people who are interested in this research and in this science, we highly encourage you to follow Randy uh, on Instagram as well as get onto that website and learn more about the projects that they're doing. Gentlemen, Tabitha, thank you guys so much for your time today. Steve, I'll let you close it off. Yeah, uh, until next time, thank you for talking mule deer. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.